0: Today's episode is brought to you by Alyssa Washuda's White Magic, a book Kristen Arnett calls magnificent. In this collection of intertwined essays, Washuda writes about land, heartbreak, and colonization, about life without the escape hatch of intoxication, and about how she became a powerful witch. She interlaces stories from her forebears with cultural artifacts from her own life. Twin Peaks, the Oregon Trail 2 video game, a claymation Satan, a YouTube video of Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham to explore questions of cultural inheritance and the particular danger as a native woman of relaxing into romantic love under colonial rule. Says Stephen Graham Jones, white magic Red Magic, Stevie Nicks Magic, this is Alyssa Washuda Magic, which is a spell carved from a life, written in blood, and sealed in an honesty I can hardly fathom. White Magic is out on April 27th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I would have been excited to have Ricky Ducournay, back on the show under any circumstances, but I was particularly excited to have her back from the moment I learned the surprising news that her next book would be science fiction. Because given her career-long, deep engagement with the animal, vegetable, and mineral wonders of Earth, of the deep zoo of our imaginations, of what she calls the reconstitution of Eden, with the human placed not in dominion over, but as just another remarkable species among many remarkable species, I was super curious what a Ricky Ducourney novel would be like set in a post-Earth, post-human world. What would it be like to follow Ricky out into space? What of... What we know of her work would go with her. What would be new and newly discovered? We had to sort out some technical hurdles as part of having this conversation. Hurdles whose only real evidence in what you'll hear is that the best place for Ricky to record ended up being a room that has some reverb, some, some echo. It is something you'll quickly get used to and forget. But perhaps this is fitting nonetheless that we should imagine us talking to Ricky from her space capsule way out beyond Earth's gravitational pull, farther out in our galaxy than we ourselves have ever imagined, calling us to follow the surprise of what she herself has dreamed into existence. For the Bonus Audio Archive, Ricky reads two of her poems, a short poem called Bees Are the Overseers and a long poem called White Quetzal from Orlando to Nice. We don't talk about her long career as a painter and illustrator in this conversation, but she's also offered multiple signed reproductions of her work that illustrated a 1983 book, of Jorge Luis Borges's. And there are still some of these available. So to find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, or how to get yourself a Ricky Ducourney print, or about any of the many other possible benefits of reimagining yourself from a listener to a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com between the covers and check it all out. And now my conversation with Ricky Ducourne. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us.
1: I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like
0: put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature
1: as a a catalyst for dialogue and and, and
0: new forms of of thinking.
1: All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin.
0: Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and painter Ricky Ducournay a writer of novels, essays, short fiction, and poetry. Ducourne is the winner of the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction and the Literature Award from the Academy of Arts and Letters. And her novel, The Jade Cabinet, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her other books include the essay collections, The Monstrous and the Marvelous, and The Deep Zoo, the poetry collection, The Cult of Seizure, and the novels, The Fountains of Neptune, the Fanmakers, Inquisition, Natsuke, and Brightfellow, for which she first appeared on Between the Covers. Of her writing, William Gass has said, Ricky DuCornet's books search for a way to heal the wound in our psyche, our shame and suppression of our nature, which has led not only to denial of this world on behalf of another one, but has repeatedly allowed authority and its agents to blind us to beauty, to make our passions poisonous, and to corral and confine the imagination. Stephen Sparks adds, Du Quernet reminds us that our position in the universe reflects our imagining of it, and that as a consequence, we should be wary of those who attempt to cordon this spark. Ricky Du is also a renowned painter. Her paintings have been exhibited the world over, from Costa Rica to Chile, from Prague to Portugal to Massachusetts to Indiana. Her art has also illustrated the writings of Robert Coover, Jorge Luis Borges, Kate Bernheimer, Chana Mieville, Anne Waldman, and Forrest Gander, among many others. Ricky returns to Between the Covers today to talk about her latest novel and her first foray into science fiction, entitled Traffic, out now from Coffee House Press. Publishers Weekly says of Traffic, DuCourney dazzles with this whirlwind jaunt through a far future universe, told in jargon-studded prose that turns gonzo science into gleeful lyricism. Brian Evanson adds, Surrealism meets space opera in Traffic. Ricky Ducourney's startlingly original look at a post-human and non-human pairing wandering through space while obsessed with the scattered fragments of a world they never knew. At once funny and absurd, traffic peers at our own time through the lens of the future to reveal what we should regret losing and what would be better gone. Finally, Kirkus, in its Star review, calls Traffic a surrealist science fiction tour de force, a winsome space picaresque in which surreality piles upon surreality as the ill-matched soulmates navigate the unknown universe in their search for identity, belonging, and the sensual pleasures of the flesh, even if that flesh is actually a machine. A long-time master of the extraordinary sentence, Ducournay has outdone herself here, blending sci-fi's penchant for invented jargon with her own queer linguistic egalitarianism in which all adjectives describe all nouns in a primordial soup of possibility. This slender book captivates with its ferocious curiosity, quick wit, and ultimately tender generosity carried along by the bumptious rollick of its language. This tale is full of sound and fury signifying literally everything. Welcome back to between the covers, Ricky DuCournet.
1: Thank you. What a delight to be back.
0: So since this book imagines both a post earth and a post human future, I thought we could start with how you imagined the future when you were last on the show. So earlier in your life, you had four books that formed a tetralogy, each corresponding to one of the four elements. And when you came on the show for Brightfellow, I mentioned that I had seen somewhere that you had considered it part of a loose trilogy, one that started with Nitsuke, then, then followed by Brightfellow, the book we talked about, and then to be finished with a future imagined book. And you said it was a trilogy looking at betrayal, the first book about the psychoanalyst who had betrayed his patients and his wife and, and really ultimately was betraying himself. And then Brightfellow, which was about the betrayal of childhood. And at the time you were thinking the third future book would be about Algeria, a, a place you lived for several years shortly after Algerian independence. And it would be about the betrayal of a people and the betrayal of a country and its future. But Traffic is definitely not that book. But I wondered if, nevertheless, if you see Traffic in its own way connected to Bright Fellow and Nitsuke as the third piece of a series on betrayal, or is it something else entirely? And if it's the latter, how did it seize you and take you in a different direction?
1: Oh, gosh, you're wonderful at this. That's such a great question. It's something else entirely. It um, It pounced. And the other book is still there. It's the only book that has not wanted me to finish it. Um, I don't really understand why. I know why I stopped. I know why, at, at a certain moment, I had to leave it behind. Um, I was I was doing a lot of investigation into the Algerian War, which was as wars are incredibly bloody. Um, there was uh, more napalm used by the French at the border between Algeria and Tunisia than we used in, in Vietnam. Um, that was genocide and torture. So I was doing all this research, which, which was necessary. And suddenly, Abu Ghraib hit and those photographs. And the, the kind of mysterious remove, you know, a certain distance that I was able to manage that was allowing me to do all this research and and research not unlike research I had done in the past you know, suddenly um, I lost my muscle, you know, suddenly I felt so deeply devastated by the reality that I found myself stopped in my tracks, I still hope at some point, perhaps to get back to that book but. Um, but something has shifted and I think perhaps in part, a deep, uh, a, a deep sadness over all of our losses and, and this looking to the future in this way, even though I have very um, I have big concerns about it and um, a really complex relationship I think with the way um, I see us going still it it, um, it allowed for a kind of energy and a kind of imagining that I, I found very salutary. that somehow the sadness that I was feeling and the anger as well was it was suddenly possible to transform that into another kind of energy or at least extend it out into places where I could, I could be funny and I could um, experiment with ways of, of looking and thinking that were new. So that I was entering into really a novel experience.
0: Yeah. we Well, Julio Cortezar's From the Observatory is a book that it appears by name throughout Traffic as a cherished book. And I was going to ask you about it later on, but as we were talking back and forth, you had suggested reading a bit from it near the beginning of our conversation, uh, because in many ways the idea for traffic comes out of this book for you. So, could you talk about the relationship between the two books a little bit, and then and then read us a, a brief section from from the the ghost book for traffic?
1: No, well, I would love to. I think uh, in the first place, something about the opening lines of the book really triggered. My imagination. There was something about its nature, um, the, the rhythms and the language. I think something overall too about his his marvelous way of of bringing together the migration of sea eels and an exploration exploration of of the cosmos as perceived in India in Jaipur, in this observatory, 18th century observatory. He took pictures as well. And that conjunction of events within the book somehow released all this energy. And, uh, and then I found myself wanting to return back. I had no idea that the book would be such an important book in my book and that there would be this thread all the way through. But there it was. Could we hear a little bit? So uh, what I'll do is, is, just, you know, read, read these opening lines, this hour that can arrive sometimes outside of all hours, a hole in the net of time, this way of being between, not above or behind, but between, this orifice hour to which we gain access in the lee of other hours, of the immeasurable life with its hours ahead. And on the side, it's time for each thing, it's things at the precise time.
0: And we'll we'll have you do a reading later on that will sort of echo back against what you just read for us um, front, within your own book. But in 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 reading traffic, I, I thought of three moments in our last conversation that I wanted to bring up. One where you were talking about the collapse of the populations of wild creatures on the planet. You you mentioned the difference walking along Boulder Creek decades ago when there were flocks of innumerable birds, and more recently at the time when you were there and you just saw a bird here or there, and about our shared DNA with non-human creatures and the existential loneliness of losing these other companions on the planet. The second thing I remember was you mentioning In passing, a scientist who was figuring out how we were going to colonize Mars when we could no longer live here anymore. And you said that the scientist envisioned bringing other creatures with us and how we would do so. And just that notional gesture that he would want to even consider bringing others along, non-humans along, helped you sleep at night. The third is a passage that we engaged with from your essay collection, The Deep Zoo, that wondered if we would finally accept or even rejoice in the other and otherness if that otherness was something we ourselves had made. And that excerpt goes, and this is from you in in your essay collection, imagine with me an absolute book of unnatural nature, fully immersive, polysensory, eloquent, in which everything is reactive, self-replicating, a mutable, complex, and functioning system with which the reader, who is now far more than reader, may interact as she does with the real. Will such an artifice allow us to be more fully alive, more fully human? Will we be less fearful of the palpable dissimulations of our imaginations than we are of the real itself? When we dissolve into and interact with fully embodied avatars, will we cease to fear our own bodies and bodies other than our own? When the things of the world are all of our own invention, will we finally allow ourselves to cherish them? Will our worlds be sparked with the breath of Eros, or will Eros vanish? When our tigers are striped to fit our fancy, and the ruined ocean is replaced by an apparition in which phantom orcas call out to one another and cling on, will the world finally take on a real significance? I I read this again now because I feel like it's the exact imagining of yours with all of its animating questions that is now the setting of traffic. The earth is gone. Everything we have is made by us. And these questions you raise here are the questions of this book. So I was hoping you could maybe just introduce us to and orient us further to the world of your novel and and more particularly introduce introduce us to the two protagonists, Quiver and and Mike.
1: The synchronicity here is extraordinary. I wish I had known this would happen because yesterday my son sent me uh, a little video of some children, three children, in some sort of a, I guess, a theme park, sitting on what looked like a bank of ice, looking out on the sea, and an orca came out of the sea, just lifted itself out of the water, and approached them, and fell back into the water, and then another one came, and then another, and the children sort of moved back, and then I realized This was all virtual reality. And at some point, the three orcas just plowed the water, creating all these these waves. And one of them came out and approached again, as I recall, and this little boy who was the most fearless reached out to touch him. And then he went away and then a polar bear showed up and the children were frightened and they were enchanted. And again, it was a little boy who dared reach out um, and then some penguins showed up on this bank of false ice and 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 did their thing, you know, sort of danced around the children. And it was stunning and it was fascinating and it was also heartbreaking because there we were, I mean, here we are, uh, this is exactly what is happening. So astonishing that you should actually bring that particular moment up. Um, but indeed, I mean, this I believe your question was, you know, the connections here with traffic. And yeah, traffic came from uh, immense suffering. And I know I'm not alone with this. You know, we're all more or less dramatically suffering right now because of these losses. And I find myself returning again and again to things similar as to what you described um, remembering my childhood in which they were, they were always creatures. I, I grew up on Bard College campus, this very small, wonderful, intimate place then, it's still wonderful, but we were an intimate community. It was very tribal, um, very close to the woods along the Hudson River, and, and so my experience of the natural world was constant and rich, and um, I, I was always near animals and I remember things like the number of earthworms after a rain or the number of butterflies in a meadow so I'm feeling those losses I think we are all feeling them even those of us who are urban people who do not necessarily have these experiences still I think the loneliness is beginning to be extreme and um, and the fact that it is also ongoing I think it becomes palpable and and very very difficult to uh, overcome as a, as a thing of just immense betrayal and loss. Do we have time to repair? You know, we certainly don't have time to repair and turn things around if we continue to fight one another. So there's that too. I mean, in a sense, we have very little time. So indeed, the book was informed by by a deep a deep sadness and anger and but also uh, an ongoing interest in science an interest in space and uh, the extraordinary possibilities ahead.
0: I mean, that's one of the, uh, hearing you describe the book versus the experience of reading the book, which is a book that feels, as you say, very, there's a lot of humor. It's also full of a lot of joy and curiosity and, uh, um, and it sounds like what you'd mentioned earlier is you found a way to transform a lot of this pain into something to transform it into something else or something more
1: that's also the thing about writing fiction you know because characters appear and i think so many writers say this and and one is in their hands you know and and one has no choice but be attentive to their voices and so then they take over, and um, and I'm in good company, and they're and they're troubled, and they're funny, and their predicament is interesting, and they love one another, and they're crazy annoyed with one another, and they're stuck together, <laughs> interminably, and their job is rough, <laughs> you know, and then they start dreaming together, and I had no idea this would happen, and I had no idea that. For example, they would both fall madly in love with virtualities, which is what, what they do. Yes, I had no idea that Al Pacino would show up, for example.
0: <laughs> I'm happy that Al Pacino did. I mean, what's really interesting about our two protagonists, Quiver and Mike, is for me, one of the, the real intriguing things is the blurring of the human and the non-human. Because Quiver, the human, is mainly human, other than the small detail that she was not gestated in a womb, but rather in a hanging envelope that her umbilical cord is attached to a vitamin sac. And because of the circumstances of her life, a life that's existed post-earth, she's never experienced a breeze or eaten chocolate mousse, among many other things. She exercises in a virtual place, a virtual woods that is her main exposure to nature, And also, it's the place of her desire, a mysterious redhead she keeps seeing there. So the only real thing for her is really paradoxically her dreams, which her robot companion, Mike, scans. But Mike, in contrast, the non-human robot who was designed to keep Quiver from going insane, a robot wired to to both solve complex problems and also to philosophize, he's obsessed with the history of humans on earth. He loves the 1950s. He loves pressure cookers and Studebakers and cinema in Japan. And he is completely crushed out on Al Pacino. And wh- what's interesting about this pairing also is that memory and history are not held in the human protagonist in her mind or body, but in Mike and the avatars within the virtual world. Um, And part of why I wanted to bring this up is because there are some uncanny connections between some of the questions animating traffic and the questions animating my last guest, Jory Graham's most recent books, even as your books couldn't be less similar otherwise. But one of the things Jory's work and yours are engaging with is this question of post-humanity, which was a topic I didn't get to touch on in my conversation with Jory, but which I want to sort of draw forward into our conversation. So I'm going to read something that Jory said in an interview with Sarah Howe in 2017, which could just as easily been about her new book, but is, could be about any of her most, most recent books, and see what it sparks in you, if anything, and it, and if you think what she says relates in some way to Quiver and Mike. So this is from Jory Graham. Feeling connected to the past, for example, is a large way one feels human. So being post-historical and being post-human and post-nature are interconnected. The hatred and destruction of childhood or innocence is an essential subject. For those who see a cyborg world ahead, doing away with wonder Is just as important as doing away with empathy. The human is hard to eradicate, but I must assume it can be done. The sensation of deep past is very different from the sensation of personal past. It goes back to singular versus communal being. Communal memory is a strong force with ethical power to bind us to our humanity. It is obvious that it would be one of the first things under attack. It is also one of the wellsprings of poetry. And our long reach into it to keep awake is one of our major
1: tasks. There's so much here. So uh, a number of things come to mind. Um, One is that I've been so deeply concerned about the idea that AI can somehow replace us um had me thinking of, of really seriously doing the research and, and writing a book about this and, and in an attempt to to demonstrate this impossibility. And then I stumbled upon a book by Christoph Koch, um, on this that, that, on this subject, a very complex, you know, an extraordinary book, but it ends with him actually saying, um, that AI can never really replicate, you know, can mimic the way our minds work, but it can never really replicate the way our minds work. I mean, it seems so evident that um, to be to be fully human child or a poet um, that, that demands memory and intuition and spontaneity and dreaming and all of these wondrous things that at least... Um, right now don't belong to robots but then again here's mick who shows up in my life and, or mike as you call him it really should be mike but i, I always think of him as mick
0: oh, so we should say he's short for michelangelo right
1: that's right yes um or microphone or microphone
0: some... yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> Irrational on my part no i'll,
0: I'll start calling him mick too
1: <laughs> um so having, having Mick, um, I mean, Mick is a product of engineering, right? And and, and and yet there is there is perhaps a possibility that one could somehow manage, I suppose, to, I mean, I'm not a scientist or, or a mathematician, and, and this is way out of my realm, but but find ways not to mimic the natural world, but recreate, manage somehow to recreate that, that there would be this marriage between mathematics and biology that would make for this possibility. And then everything shifts dramatically. Then, of course, then we have all these ethical problems that we have to deal with. And we're, we already deal so poorly with ethical problems. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm touched that she mentions childhood because... Yeah, we've had a tendency to um, ignore the child in our culture, uh, unless the child is buying things or to have things bought for, as you know, I mean, this is it's devastating what has happened to our culture and the idea that. Um, that yes, that AI could replace. Uh, a novelist well why not, I mean, in a way, one thing i've said recently to people in a workshop was embrace AI, because AI will write the books you, you think you have to write, but do not have to write and probably should not write. You know, this frees your imagination, then you're on the adventure. You're not thinking about yeah, where this belongs on the shelf. And so think of it as, uh, yeah, as a liberating force if AI is writing the books and the symphonies and all else. Well, then, then we're on our own to really uh, enter into a place of deep thinking and dreaming and imagining and let them handle the marketplace.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, there it felt like a double gesture what you do around Mick, because on the one hand, I feel conflicted around the way we are outsourcing our ability to do things to non-human technological um, machines in the sense of we no longer have to know how to do math if our computer can do it for us. We no longer have to know certain things because we have a repository and Mick sort of becomes that repository for Quiver, literally becoming Quiver's memory. But on the other hand, you make this gesture of giving Mick so many um, qualities of consciousness also feels like the gesture that's lacking in what we don't do to other creatures that are alive in the sense that like, I'm thinking of, for instance, say like, Kafka when he looks at the eye of a fish and he he can't see its quote unquote humanity, but nevertheless decides to become a vegetarian and I'm not saying vegetarianism that's, I'm not even talking about vegetarianism but but acknowledging um, the agency and the the intelligence and the consciousness of creatures that we can't see ourselves in seems like something that you're doing with Mick as a robot, as a gesture that also is something that we could do for the quote-unquote dead-eyed fish.
1: For some time now, I've thought, I mean, sort of joking with this, but I I think it's true that everything could be solved with photosynthesis. You know, that we wouldn't be eating, yeah, we wouldn't be killing things any longer. It would also, yeah, it would make things much easier in the galaxy too. (laughs) travel around you mean if we could if
0: we could photosynthesize yeah yeah as long as
1: we sun, you know we're fine we don't have to be bringing all these seeds with us and you know planting potatoes and all of that you
0: know yeah well i want i'm gonna i'm gonna bring that notion back up a little later um because i do want to talk about the garden of eden which was the place where we could live without both without shame and without harming anything to and be fed. But before we do, I kind of want to play the devil's advocate uh, around some I want to propose some questions that I suspect are impossible questions. Um uh, and and just hear your thoughts on them nevertheless. Because you you like Jory, throughout your work, speak in defense of something precious in childhood that be should be preserved and you believe the creative imagination is our way out of the mess we've made of things. In your conversation with John Madera, you said creative imagination is essential both to our humanity and to our survival as a species, that it's essential to the evolutionary process. But Jory Graham doesn't only say that the hatred and destruction of childhood is an essential subject, but also in our conversation she talked in contrast to this, about how destructive children themselves are, how in play they will tear something apart to know it. Uh, they will break something open or simply break something to know. And, and I also wonder if likewise, if our imaginations are both essential and yet also the central source of our current problem of disembodiment at the same time, of us sort of imagining ourselves into a world that is just imaginings. And I I don't know if you have any thoughts on these on these what seem like paradoxes to me.
1: I'm thinking of of children um, who are so different from culture to culture as well, and that I'm um, thinking of the Yano mommy peoples in the Amazon, who I studied years ago. And, um, and they're, I think, profoundly ingrained sense of the sacred and the sacredness of not just the world around them and the things in the world around them, but, but their own children and how wonderful within the Yano of of around 50 people, the relationships would be with everyone there, every adult considering every child as as someone within the family. And I suppose that was probably true to a great extent because it was a small tribe of people. And what struck me too was the, the sweetness with which people interacted the, the elders with the little ones and the little ones with the natural world. And so I think what she may also be describing is, is the child who perhaps, perhaps she has been not simply curious, but perhaps harmed in such a way, or, or made to feel that things can be broken. You know, and then, and then you have a whole world, a broken world. And suddenly the science that that world is creating is a science of the museum of, of compared anatomy in Paris, which I loathe and, 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 and adore simultaneously, which is filled with the objects that have been mutilated by an unthinking science and science without, without thoughtfulness and without any understanding of uh, ecological systems and their complexities. And and so you have the penis of an elephant in slices like a sausage in a jar. I mean, things like that. A crucified um, ape. And it's, it's a fascinating place and it's a heartbreaking place because uh, the damage is simply so apparent. I'm not sure, you know, that... That we are wired to break things, I think we're more wired to wonder, and I and I do think that something with within our culture has it just keeps breaking, breaking our hearts, you know, and yeah, and um, and denying the wonder, and the and and it's it's very interesting to me that science collides there as well. I mean, you have the you have the scientists who are telling us everything is inter- in interconnected and if we're going to understand our world and e- and every single thing within it we have to understand the relationships that exist they are far reaching and they're essential otherwise we do not understand you know we take the pygmy man out of his realm and and put him on display you know at the world's fair we know nothing about him but we we live among his people and learn their language and celebrate life with them and all of that. Well, then we begin to have maybe an understanding of, of who they are, and then we find ourselves within them.
0: Could we hear the, um, the chapter between? Yes. That is also, it's in relationship to the section you read of the, of the Cortázar at the beginning?
1: With pleasure between. How often, Quiver thinks, how often have I been without access to safety? How terrible it is, and yet how familiar, to be forever on the verge of falling. And would it have been any different had I gestated in a womb and not in an envelope suspended in a darkened room, rocked by the breathing of a fume vap, the whispers of apprentices moving among us in their blues like ghosts. Sometimes I wonder if my excursions into space are not simply an excuse for leaping off a cliff. How often have I been between planets, between worlds, between galaxies without footing, relentlessly alone, without promise of release, trapped in the web of unknowing, the unending memory of loss? Snailed, mixed word, in her hammock, Quiver attempts to become as fluid as water. She has read that if she becomes water, she will stop feeling thirsty. But where has Quiver read this, living as she has from the start in worlds without books? And what is this she holds against her heart, this person, Quiver, who still manages somehow to be a person, although so much has been stolen right out from under her. As you have likely guessed, it is book she holds, a beautiful book, its cover a gray jade, its title printed in lavender. A book by Julio Cortazar who wrote, terrible things can happen to us, who wrote, the revolution is a sea of wheat. A book that is a transgression, a book that had survived the scouring, and having passed from hand to hand, reached her lover. On the verge of being disappeared, her lover had managed to assure that Quiver could find it. She had proposed a time and a place for them to meet in one of the moon's many hallways. Quiver recalls how an icy chill had moved through her, how the hall was empty, its air nearly exhausted. She thinks she will always be in this hallway, its blind doors and filthy windows of bubbled glass. She searches for signs. She comes upon the book hidden beneath a bench. With a single gesture, takes it up, slips it beneath her shirt, sits down as if fatigued, looks at her feet, stretches and yawns, and returns to her room. Time passes and then she finds the courage to open the book. Although the text is brief, never has she seen anything so extensive. Alone in the deep silence, she takes the first page between her fingers Gently turning it over, she begins to read. This way of being between, not above or behind, but between. This orifice hour. i
0: have been listening to Ricky Du read from Traffic. So, so when we we talked when we talked about Brightfellow, I was also reading your essay collection The Deep Zoo, at the same time, and I used it as a way into the novel when we talked. This time while reading Traffic, I read your earlier collection of essays, The Monstrous and the Marvelous. And in that essay collection, there's a declaration that seems like an Ars Poetica for you. You say, all my books investigate the end of Eden and the possibility of its reconstitution. And it's true that we see the promise of Eden and our fall from it across a lot of your work. In The Complete Butcher's Tales, you describe the fall with these sentences. A mature albino ape, its heart pierced by an arrow, falls from a tropical tree. As he falls, he attempts to catch the blood ropes spouting from his breast. In truth, his wound is fathomless, a mortal fracture in the body of the world. Similarly, in in The Jade Cabinet, a man is trying to discover the original speech of Eden by keeping his firstborn daughter quote-unquote innocent of language. And the scene in Brightfellow with the child protagonist playing with the light cast on the linoleum floor, where he not only imagines the animals and birds he sees, but he names them much like Adam did. There There were many things I wondered about in terms of what happens to Ricky DuCournay and her prose when she leaves Earth for space. But the thing I wondered most about as you left Earth for the first time in, in your career was, if we abandon Earth, if Earth is no longer inhabitable or doesn't exist, does this question of the reconstitution of Eden come to an end, or does it continue? And it seems like traffic answers it, at least obliquely, as we do encounter a glass snake and a glass apple. But I wanted to take this question into the question of language, of whether language is a barrier and or scrim across reality, or whether it is or can be a portal, where a shamanic poet might say the words that they speak are words that are speaking through them on behalf of the earth or the water. So, so on the one hand, we have the main character in, in Cortazar's book who wants to get behind and beyond the words to the quote-unquote pure image, a place described by him as beyond metaphor with lines in that book like, an eel that is a star that is an eel that is a star that is an eel and who says, as you quoted in the passage you just read, that only by becoming water himself will he stop feeling thirsty. But you also talk of language as magic, of words engendering worlds. And I just wondered, is this, is this a paradox for you? Um, and are we still trying to become water to stop being thirsty are we still trying to re-enter the Garden of Eden when the snake and the apple are now made of glass rather than made of flesh?
1: What an interesting question. Um, In in traffic, what happened to my surprise was a Carnegie Library (laughs) appears. And it's devoid of books, but that's what it is. It's the classic Earthian library. And and there are no books in it, though the librarian has just begun to get the children to make their own books. But it's empty, but for these other ways of communicating. And so there's some crafts people who've come up with these kind of speaking forms. Um, that really are not books, but that are, that do communicate information under particular circumstances. But that's all that is, that's all that is there. Um, One of the things that has fascinated me about a language again and again, I mean, I do return to these things over and over, hopefully in new ways. I'm always searching them And that is the ways in which language can be so destructive, uh, which is why I devoted a book to a French Nazi, for example. Um, Or or language can be the portal to visionary experience. And What happened to me unexpectedly with traffic was at the beginning, thinking about all that we're, all that is, all that we're losing and, and the loneliness therein uh i wondered what would it be to take that journey into a book into space leaving everything behind what would that look like you know what where would one arrive what would happen along the way it's, it's extraordinarily naive because there is without without earth and references to earth there is nothing there is no way to travel and go anywhere now we have to somehow bring that with us, uh, and so that's that's where the book took me. But it was it was language. I don't know something happened to the language, and and for me it always does. I mean, the language takes over, characters take over, their voices take over, and all else around that inevitably is served by language <laughs> because I'm writing a book takes over and. Um, and things just begin to sing. And then I know I'm in good hands, even if I haven't a clue as to where this is going. I mean, I had not a clue that from the observatory would be so important to the entire book, you know, that I'd be dreaming with Cortesar the entire time and in conversation with him somehow. Um, and I had no idea I'd land up in, in this the suburbs you know, it was a total surprise, and yet it made perfect sense to me, because the suburbs is such a place of importance for so many people on our planet. I mean, the dream is, you know, the the green suburb with its lawns and the home. And these are, these are two beings longing for home and longing for love, and they're going to find it. And I, again, I had no idea it was the language that just picked me up by the scruff of the neck as it has want to do and dropped me there. And I, I was so surprised. I was so surprised when, when quiver is exploring this place. And there are all these students from intergalactic universities, you know, um, it's, you know, it's like, uh, what's the name of that place in Mexico where everybody shows up? You know, Mazatlan. It's like Mazatlan. <laughs> what is happening here? This is just like Mazatlan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, and then it made perfect sense. Or that uh, that there would be this crazy um, public park where intergalactic erotic exercises are taking place of all kinds, with yeah. all in all manner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you
0: know. Yeah. No, that I loved. I mean, the picaresque description in one of the blurbs that I read at the beginning, I think, is really true. That sense of that, the joy of of the encounter in this book is is really delightful.
1: David, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I wanted to. So you'd said it. We can't. You know, in a way, we can't leave home without home in a way that's part of what is, seems to be happening as they do leave home. When I when I was a when I was a teenager my dad took me to see Carl Sagan speak about humans traveling to Mars. And for those who don't know who Carl Sagan is now, which I'm guessing is a lot of people, he he was the Neil deGrasse Tyson of my childhood and he started and hosted Cosmos and was known for his phrase that opened the show Billions and billions of stars, and the ways and the way that he said it. Um, And his talk was structured as a response to those who said, Why would we want to spend billions and billions of dollars on this when we have so many problems on Earth? And his argument, in my long-distant memory, which, you know, for all I know, wasn't his argument since this is decades ago now, but in my memory, was that. It was this act of imagining together as a species that it was out in space where we could collaborate and aspire and dream together and come together as a planet. At the time, to my young self, that seemed like a beautiful and exciting dream. But I wonder now if the presumption that everything is going to be different outside the atmosphere is just a way to pretend our problems away because nothing that we've done in space so far has been different from the space trash problem we've created an orbit which is becoming dire to much of our exploration being an extension of a given nation's nationalism and national identity or a projection of military and economic power. And it seems right to me that both Quiver and Mick have been grown essentially for the extractive purpose of trace mineral reconnaissance. Um, This is my long way of wanting to talk about the body and our attempts to escape the body. Much like we aren't talking about our current hunger for trace minerals, because we have a current hunger for trace minerals for our cell phones and our laptops and more and more for our electric cars and our wind turbines We're not talking about how that's connected causally to the pandemic and elevated pandemic risk overall. We we are also pretending that all of this virtual technology doesn't have a body, that these cordless things, cordless phones and other cordless devices magically make things happen in the ether, that we haven't actually laid giant cables across the bottom of the ocean that we, ha- we aren't sinking servers into the ocean to keep them from overheating, that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, which are, are um, talked about as if they're virtual, according to a recent study in Nature, the amount of electricity and hardware demands they have alone with current growth estimates could push the planet above two degrees of warming on its own, just cryptocurrencies. Or that we pretend that there aren't innumerable humans, children as young as seven years old, mining these minerals under the threat of violence and intimidation. But we are tied to all these things. We all have cords. Even these cordless things have cords. And Quiver, whose cord goes into a vitamin sack, has a cord. Uh, You've written extensively about our hostility to our bodies. Um, And I just wondered if you linked that also to this desire to leave the planet as an extension of the desire to leave the body, or maybe to pretend that we don't have a body.
1: Um, I really want to get into that. I just want to say, though, quickly ahead of time, that uh, one of the things that is happening is all the work that we are, all the things that we are investigating to enable our lives on Mars, say all the things that we could do to bring an atmosphere to Mars and, and grow, um, grow the things we need and so on. It, all of these uh, things that are happening are also going to enable, if, if we survive, you know, if we survive the next couple of you know, tens of years, um, these things will enable us to transform our planet back to earth
0: Transform, transform Earth back to Earth.
1: Transform Earth back to Earth. Yeah, that's so fascinating. We're learning how to do that, and that's that is very interesting. Yeah. And we're also every 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 astronaut who's been in uh, orbit around our planet, and it's amazing how well these people appear to get along with one another. I mean, they all talk about how how precious the planet is, and as seen from space, and how. How precious the relationships and how precious humanity and so on and another thing i wanted to say because um, i've been poking around and all this stuff came upon a book recently you know architects and city planners and so forth have been brought in to do to propose projects for mars and they're all kinds you know and you have the, the one that's absolutely intolerable which looks like a bunch of igloos you know, with a tiny little peephole to look out, you know, and you'd go mad. I mean, it would be like a story by Brian Evanson, you know, in no time flat, <laughs> you know, you'd be howling <laughs> in misery, you know. Yes. Uh, but then, then there are people who show up with these ideas. One of them is a spiral, looks kind of like a shell. Apparently, this is also one way of dealing with, uh, w- with, with the problems of radiation. But now they're also developing a glass, which deals with that problem. And uh, at the interior of the spiral was gorgeous, and you'd wake up in the morning on top and walk down the spiral staircase, which I absolutely adored, into this large room. And there were there were other rooms, of course, but the main room was downstairs with this amazing view out at the Martian landscape, which is quite extraordinary. There are places that are really kind of amazingly interesting, and and others that actually look very close to Earth, you know, um, but. In another book, I came upon all these people have been asked for city planning, and again, they were they were the plans that were were terrifying. There were the plans that, interestingly, did not have movie theaters or or libraries, but um, but would have a sports arena. <laughs> um, but there was one that was I've forgotten the name of these places, but there are these fissures in Mars that go on for a hundred miles or more. They're very deep. And that, um, uh, and inside they're quite wide. And so it looks like that you're in a a kind of mountain world. Um, And, and so what was imagined was that this entire space would be covered with this glass so that there would be sunlight without the danger of radiation. And someone came up with an idea that looked like Italy and why not, you know, with cobbled streets and these wonderful buildings up. In, in what looked like, you know, the mountain cliffs and um, charming places to eat outside <laughs> <laughs> and uh, shared kitchens, yeah. but also a lot of, um, yeah, a, a lot of, of, of food that would be available for the entire community. But if you wanted to cook, you know, you, you could do that.
0: Well, I just want to interject this a sort of random thing that I learned this, this last couple of weeks because uh, apparently the rocks that they're discovering on Mars have a very similar composition to the rocks in the southwest of France, in the Dordogne, where my wife is from. And so they're naming them all after these really small towns, including the the town where my wife Lucy grew up. So she could really go home. She could go to Mars and she could hang out in, in the rocks named after after her um, hometown.
1: That is so fabulous. <laughs> I had, By the way... NASA has this site up. It's a friend of mine who created this thing, Erica Blumenfeld. She's brilliant. She's an artist, photographer, passionately interested in science and um, and started working for NASA because of her interest in moon rocks and all rocks, actually. So to Astro Materials, you find her site where you can not only look at rocks from Mars um, that have fallen to Earth in the form of meteorites. Um, but also moon rocks and you can choose the rocks that you want to look at and you can see them in three dimensions and you can turn them around and you can look inside and see what they look like inside so astro materials from nasa and the other project was started by erica blumenfeld it's it's a wondrous thing
0: yeah well i i don't know if i derailed the first part of your answer or not but i'm going to return to the other part of the question and i'm going to ask i'm going to ask it in a slightly different way, but sort of the same question. Uh, and the question being around if you feel like there's a connection between um, the leaving of the planet and the, and the, our desire to disembody ourselves from the body. Because there's an interview for your, that you did with Alexander Lawrence for uh, Phosphor and Dreamland. And you say something that reminded me both of Ross Gay talking about how we are all entangled with each other and the acknowledgement that we are all going to die being the portal to joy and connection both. And also to Jory Graham, who sees collectivity found counterintuitively through our bodies and the sensorial rather than the psychological. And in this interview with Alexander Lawrence, he said, in order to love the other, the stranger... The mysterious aspects of the world, in order to be a free being, an autonomous, fearless, and imaginary being, in order to embrace and protect the natural world, and to create for oneself and for others, the space in which transformation and creation are always possible, one must love the body, the mutable, the fragile, the mortal body.
1: No, I still believe that. I think that's our problem, is that we left Tantra behind us long ago and have gotten into all these ideologies and um, misunderstandings, I think, of what the sacred is all about, that really despise the body and fear the body, perhaps because it is fragile and because it is finite. But it's destroying us, with this fear of our own body and, and the dismissal of the others, the bodies of the others, this fear of the other. I mean, I often wonder if our fear of the other's body is a fear of the unknown, so the fear of death. Mm. Um, it's an unfamiliar human being is as unfamiliar as our own demise or something. But whatever it is, it's irrational and it's destroying us. And, and again, I don't know how we can persist as a species if we continue to hate our own bodies and bodies of the other and, the, and, the, and natural bodies. I mean, it's absurd If if we are going to continue as a species, and let's imagine, um, come up with ways of of living on another planet, uh, will we only bring animals that we eat? What a horrible notion that would be. Or do we actually bring
0: animals that don't have a use, a quote unquote use?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And without, because we still don't understand that it is all useful. It is all useful.
0: Well, and also thinking about the the way we want, always find it interesting and compelling to center ourselves as the problem solvers. Like there are people who are trying to design these things that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere. That are these tall, narrow uh, devices that look suspiciously like tree trunks, but you could just have trees and allow the trees to actually exist on their own term, not in tree farms, but in complicated ecosystems. But we're really into funding this notional tree, rather than the than cohabitating with the the actual tree. It seems to me.
1: That seems to be deeply neurotic. I mean, very existentially compromised species. You know, needing to control everyone and everything. Yeah. And it looks like it's going to ruin us.
0: Well, I want to. I want to take. I want to return again to the Garden of Eden and language because it was something I was engaging with Jory Graham as well with the two trees, the, the tree of life, the tree representing us perhaps speaking the original Edenic language where we're in harmony with other creatures, of the idea of not being thirsty because we ourselves are water, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which represents the ability to have abstract thought that may or may not, to a greater or lesser degree, be connected to the quote-unquote real world and which led to our fall. With Jory and now you, I, wanna, I, I just want to bring up briefly Martin Buber, not because either of you are directly naming him in your work, though you do overtly engage with Kabbalistic ideas in your essays and mystical practices in your book, but because his goal also is the reconstitution of Eden, but doing so somehow mysteriously while retaining the things that make us human since eating from the tree of representation. So those things don't get denied, but perhaps they get tethered again to the embodied, to the incarnate, to the beingness not only of ourselves, but to the encounter of the beingness of other beings even and especially ones we can't understand or comprehend or reduce to something knowable. I just wondered if if that sounded like a kindred enterprise to you, if you're familiar with his writings, um, and if this notion of returning to the garden isn't returning to the way we were before, it, but it's returning with the things that have changed us
1: I think the problem is we need to return to what all all that we might have been before Yahweh showed up and messed everything up. I mean, the garden was, was paradise. And I'm with the Gnostics, you know, with this idea that the first emanation of the Christ was a snake saying, by all means, you know, eat of the tree of knowledge, the tree of knowing. That if they had been left alone, it was marvelous place, yeah, brimming with the erotic, yes, and, and Jehovah hadn't shown up, yeah. What a different world that would be. I mean, he's you know the, the, these these angry, reductive, you know, nasty.
0: Yeah. Well, after after my conversation with with Jory and anticipation of ours, I sort of boobered out a little bit. Um for my own cu- curiosity, and I was listening to some lectures by a Martin Buber scholar about his encounters with Heidegger post-war in the 1960s. And you you quite often have these protagonists in your work that are brilliant fallen figures, the way that I maybe I conceive of Heidegger, someone admired and with great influence in the academy who was, at the same time, totally fine with the removal of Jews and other quote unquote degenerate or unclean influences from German society, culturally, and economic life of Germany. Um, unsurprisingly, after the war, he was courting Martin Buber's favor as part of the recl- reclamation of his name. But when talking to other people, he either pretended or he didn't, he either pretended he didn't know Buber. Or didn't know anything beyond its name, but the the thing I found most interesting was that Buber, despite having written scholarly work about the ways Heidegger's philosophy was problematic, and despite his friend saying, "What do you have to gain from talking to a, a past supporter of the Nazis?" Buber considered the questions Heidegger raised as important ones to engage with, and was willing to meet and engage with Heidegger about them in person. And the reason I bring this up in my long-winded question is around the nature of language. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but Buber um, refers to Heidegger's philosophy and more generally felt that anytime we acted as if we could look at language ontologically, as if it were structurally independent and removed from the speaker of it, or as if it weren't at its core an act of dialogue, a speech act, that the thoughts that come from looking at the language this way will lead us astray. That for Buber, language essentially is dialogic and relational. And I thought of that because When Quiver and Mick end up on the planet AM Locus, which is the first planet with seeds of extraterrestrial multigenesis, masterminded by von Pfeffertitz, who is basically a brain without a body suspended in a spoiled soup disembarrassed of all significant events, our narrator then says, quote, I suppose collapse was inevitable. After all, Everything she and her husbands experimented with was isolated from its realms, its tribes, and from itself. Everything they touched was made singular, was made lonely, without roots or context. And I wondered if, if does that for you also apply to language? That language ultimately, like Buber, is intersubjective, is a di- is a is a dialogic thing that shouldn't be lifted out of its realms. Out of itself and made lonely
1: definitely as as for so much else i mean it's all relational you know everything all the way down right down to protons it's all relational there's a um have you, ever, have you ever stumbled upon um there's there's a very interesting moral philosopher and philosopher of science i think he called himself named Daniel Schmachtenberger.
0: No, I don't know who, him.
1: Uh, has all these uh, talks he's done on YouTube. He's a very, very interesting guy. He's a very beautiful one. Um, it's called the Talk on Emergence. And he's sitting on the beach somewhere, barefoot, with his, his followers around him. He's, he's young people very interested in his ideas. And he's talking about um, the beginning of things. This great foam of possibility, everything uh, on, on the verge of becoming, and and he describes it really beautifully. Beautifully that before our universe there was just sort of this you know this foam of I don't think he uses the word foam there, but but referring to that idea, this foam of possibility, that there is nothing but energy and and the possibilities of, of all that energy can provide and create. And uh, And he talks about these forces colliding with one another, you know, in the chaos of the moment bouncing off one another. But because, he says, because ours is a universe of attraction. At some point things collide and come together and stay together. And then the universe begins. This keeps happening. These forces come together, stay together. universe of attraction, but not only that, it's a universe of novelty, and, and these things that are now forming because of this attraction, these things that have come together and stay together, are, are on any are, are totally unlike anything that has ever been, including the energies that have come together. This is something that is totally novel. Yeah. So universe of attraction and universe of novelty. And as he was speaking, I thought of the Surrealists, and I thought of Max Ernst and his collages. And I thought, yes, I understand this. It's gorgeous. And then he mentioned Salvador Dali. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I thought, wow, I could get into this stuff. You know, (laughs) (laughs) there's a place for me here in quantum physics. Yeah. Very, very grateful for Daniel Schmackenberger. Gorgeous, I, I suggest everybody look for that. It's a beautiful thing. It's only about 35 minutes.
0: Well, maybe that's a good time to to actually talk about surrealism because not so long ago I discovered that a, a book just came out called Surrealist Women's Writing, a Critical Exploration that has a chapter on Unica Zorn, a chapter on Dorothea Tanning, a chapter on Leonora Carrington, and ends with a final wonderful and, for me, eye-opening chapter on you called Magical Language, Esoteric Nature. Ricky Ducourney's Surrealist Ecology, written by Christopher Noheden. And I reached out to him to get a copy of the chapter. And I was reading it. And as you know, a month later, you you emailed me a, a photo of the cover when you received a copy, not knowing that I was reading it. And, um, and then we started talking, and I learned that he's your Swedish translator. Um but I love this chapter on you and how Christopher places you in what he says is a little recognized, though fun, fundamental ecological tendency in surrealism. Um, he places you actively within the activities of the surrealist mov- movement of the last half century, and we learn many fascinating details, such as your friendship with Angela Carter when you were living in France. But But what I found particularly interesting on a theoretical level, is when he says that your writings suggest, quote, that ecological interrelations may emerge from playful analogical associations that reveal the interrelatedness of things kept apart by the logic of identity. I was thinking about the ecological implications of keeping things apart by the logic of identity all of a sudden, for me, surrealism as an ecological movement makes sense, not just the decentering of the human, but the breaking down of the lines between human and the non-human. And then when I think of that, I think of your interest in alchemy, your interest in dreams, your interest in dream logic. And Christopher goes on to say, many of the resulting writings as well as her drawings and paintings of flowers, roots, and seeds metamorphosing and breaking out of botanical categorization, call up a surrealist ecology, equally attentive to the material world and to the ways in which dream and imagination may uncover new dimensions of the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms. And I'm just going to shoehorn a little bit more in because I, I just love this chapter so much. And later he, he he talks about Walter Benjamin, who was also fascinated by the conceptions of Edenic language and also argued that language occurs everywhere, that human language is just one particular example of language. And Christopher says, if animals, and this is in relationship to you, if animals and even other beings and things are ascribed a capacity to detect, to detect a deeper meaning in the universe, then the esoteric book of nature is written in a universal language that is constantly read by bacteria, agate stones, and ibises, as well as by humans attuned to surrealism's eco-occultist hermeneutics. I have no idea how this chapter strikes you or whether this is a long standing um you know awareness that uh, around this um, maybe even obvious to you this connection between ec- ecological thinking and surrealism but i'd love to hear more either about how the chapter struck you or about his thesis that um you you represent a long standing little acknowledged strain within the surrealist movement in this regard around what he would call the eco magic of language
1: it's a wonderful chapter and i am so grateful um he's a wonderful wonderful man and a brilliant one um surrealism has been i have to say on the one hand surrealism has been absolutely essential to my life from very very from very early on and um and at the same time, as active as I've been, I've always been a bit um, in what the French surrealists call the alentour, um, sort of on the edge, uh, because, because as any group, there, there can be aspects that are somewhat churchy. <laughs> and, uh, and I felt that particularly in Paris. I think it may have been particularly a Parisian problem. I'm not sure. When I was uh, eight years old, I'd, I'd had a talismanic blue egg that um, as a very little kid, I mean, I think it was four or five, um, a Robin's egg that I treasured and that had been smashed to pieces <laughs> by a drunken friend of my mother's during a party. And, uh, and that was an enormous trauma for me. <laughs> Maybe trauma is too big a word, but it really, I use the word trauma because it really affected my relationship with my mother thereafter because she had brought this into the living room so people could see how cute it was. Um, But also her response when I said, where's my egg? And she said, well, you know, I showed it to this friend who smashed it between his hands, that's what happened to it. I realized that how clueless she was to things that really mattered like Robin's eggs. Anyway, so this talismanic thing had vanished from my life Um, First time I walked into the library, um, my father moved to the campus, Bard College campus, and we were two minutes from the library, and I walked over with him. I was eight years old, and there was a spiral staircase leading up to the second story stacks, and he said to me, you'll find all kinds of books up there that will interest you, so um, go up to the second story. So I went up the spiral staircase. It's like a fairy tale. I hit a glass bridge. A bridge made of green glass, and in order to reach the stacks, I had to cross um, this this bridge of green glass, which took a lot of courage because I could see I could see the first floor of the library beneath me, and it looked like it was underwater. When I stepped off the bridge, I immediately saw a book with a blue spine, exactly the color of a robin's egg, mm-hmm. and I it's the first time I took a book from the library any library. I took it down, and it was a book of poetry written by Paul Elway with illustrations by Max Ernst. Oh, wow. Illustrated by Ernst Collages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and Max Ernst, you know, was always obsessed with birds ever since infancy. He was obsessed with uh, the birds that he saw and the artificial um, mahogany of his bed. I think it was probably, you know, the, the foot of the bed. Could have been a cabinet in his room, nobody really knows. But there was this false mahogany that, uh, in which he saw all kinds of, of magical pictures. And the, the bird, you know, these sort of mysterious bird men were part of it. And that would haunt his entire life. And and what happened was that all the, my relationship with the forest animals and with the birds and wildlife I was seeing almost every day shifted in some way to be influenced or illuminated by those poems and those collages of Max Ernst. And I never looked at the world the same after that. It felt like an extraordinary gift of companionship and an understanding. And also, I think, open the doors to infinite possibilities. You know, that the, this is what the imagination... I mean, I wouldn't have said it this way, but this is what the imagination can do. And this is what it's for.
0: I love that. It does seem imbued with magic.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Will you tell another tale... Another childhood tale in both of your essay collections about when you're reading uh, a book about a picture book about the alphabet Um, and you open to B is for B, like bumblebee. And at the same time, you're stung by a real bee. And that fusion of the B and the letter B, which in the Hebrew Bible is also the first letter of, of creation of Genesis, seems to give us a glimpse of a way back to Eden. And I love this description from The Monstrous and the Marvelous where you say, I like to imagine that Adam's tongue, his palate and his lips were always on fire, that the air he breathed was kindled to incandescence each time he cried out in sorrow or delight. If fiction can be said to have a function, it is to release that primary fury of which language even now Is miraculously capable from the dry mud of daily use, so that furred, spotted, and striped, it may, as it did in Eden, scrawl under every tree as a revelation. It feels like this alternate vision of naming that you're you both experience and you, you tell us in both of these essay collections, not the naming and classification of dominion over or of the cabinet of curiosities of classification that you return to a lot in your stories, but a naming more like fire or lightning um, or like you're being punctured by a stinger as you, as you at the same time acquire a Gnostic knowledge of what a letter means so I, I wanted to take that, that childhood story and, and just you always have these very strange names for your characters um, in every book. And, but I wanted us to talk about these two protagonists, if you could talk more about Quiver and, and uh, Mick as names.
1: I have no idea, you know, it just, there was Mick and there was Quiver. And it was only in the book later on when I realized that she would be quivering <laughs> with, uh, with all her own existential anxieties and her loneliness and her longing for love, you know, and that, uh, Mick, of course, because, uh, of, uh, microphone and, um, and I think he likes to say that it's Michelangelo, but but there is a little microphone <laughs> image on his bottom part. Yes. So I mean, so much of what happens is mysterious to me. And you know, and those are simple names. But while I was writing that book, I mean there was so much happening with language that was just fun. And it was it felt a bit like rapping. And some of it had to do with the fact that I I read as much as I can in a uh, uh, science magazine. Actually, now I'm getting the science, um, the reduced version because there's so much in the regular edition of science that I, I can't comprehend. Um, and the same with nature. I mean, nature is so wonderful. These magazines are wonderful. And, um, you know, and for a long time I read as much as I can, as best as I can. So I often, I have a kind of sense of the vocabulary even though the vocabulary is often absolutely incomprehensible to me. And so I found writing it that was part of what was happening too, is that um, a, a kind of response to the vocabulary that was taking over on its own. and it has so much to do with, um, with the rhythms, just the way the sounds happen together. You know, there's this collision of words and, and they spark, you know, their sounds that are for some reason funny. Von Febretitz actually is a name that my father came up with, which I've always adored and which I've used on occasion, um, once with some extremely pompous people, really pompous people who were, who were saying that, um, and I'm sure this was true, nonetheless, that the, the mathematics that they were doing, nobody could understand except for two other people in the universe <laughs> and they got into art history and uh, somehow we got into Michelangelo and I said, I don't know. I was feeling playful, and I said, um, you know, actually, von Feffertitz would disagree. <laughs> and, uh, and and you know, he, you know what he said. And I forgot what he what I said. He said, and they both said, oh yes, we'd forgotten von Feffertitz.
0: Of course, uh, they did.
1: Anyway, von, von Feffertitz had to show up, you know. Yeah, uh, but that too it's a very mysterious process you know I've mentioned this recently elsewhere it's it's been um, it's been a, a kind of companion thing recently for some reason I uh, know Robert Coover, I haven't seen him for some time now but we were very close friends and he once said the writing is about singing this with Harry Matthews it was a very interesting moment actually he said Harry had just given an amazing reading or, talking about the process of writing and, and, and Bob in the audience said, Harry, Harry, it's, it's like singing, isn't it? It's, it's like singing. And Harry said, yes, Bob, it's like singing. <laughs> 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 it was such a glorious moment. And it, and it is, so much of it is music.
0: Yeah, no. And I, I mean, of course there's going to be things that get carried into the names that maybe weren't intentional, but, or, um, you know you you went with the music of the words but you know i was thinking about both quiver as being something very to me it felt very animalistic to me like that that quiver was that quiver was a human animal but um but also i was thinking of arrows and i was thinking of i mean both arrows in terms of love but there's this line in the in, as i was looking at the cortazar thanks to you um there's a line in the Cortesar where the protagonist is urged to quote "interrogate the sky like someone plunging his face into an anthill with methodical fury."
1: And okay. I loved
0: that. The uh, and it just made me think of you being stung by the bee while learning the letter B. And this arrow, if like if language needs to to pierce us, it has to pierce our bodies. I know I'm probably taking this, I'm sure you're not sitting there writing this note down and then going, okay, that's why I'm going to name her quiver. (laughs) (laughs) Or that she was born in an envelope, which made me think she's made of words Mm. at the same time. Um, Even though an envelope, I could also, I also imagined like a cocoon hanging from the ceiling.
1: But that's what's so lovely too, because I think all of that makes perfect sense. And and I think so much of it is intuitive and and so much of it is there. I mean, it's, it is a mysterious process that it's it's been percolating there for some time, which is also why a book can pounce, because actually a lot of the writing has been happening already. And maybe a lot of it in dream time, which you don't even remember. But I have such a deep relationship to my dreams and dreams have been so essential to my writing that, my guess is that that's, that is part of the process that I begin the workday, and these things are just ready to pounce because they've been there. They've been sort of bubbling. Do you,
0: do you have a dream, a dream practice?
1: I, I used to, and I'm, it's, it's coming back now. I used to, um, I mean, I do write, I do write the, the important dreams down. Um, actually had a dream uh, uh, about the the pandemic, um, which was, and the word showed up, you know, pandemic showed up some months before. Just is so interesting. Mm. Um, but there was a period when, when I was writing at the beginning because my first book was triggered by a dream. I think I've talked to you about that. Um, and I was counting on my dreams to help me navigate the mysteries of each book as they as they appeared. And um, and so I did develop a kind of lucid dreaming where I would ask questions and get answers in the form of a dream. And sometimes it would be very cryptic, but always useful.
0: There's something about the way that you acknowledge the dual possibilities of language, but at the same time foregrounded as a a magical thing, a means of connection of us and other creatures that I find really intoxicating as a reader. Like I want to have that experience with language, or increase my experiences of that with language. Because on the one hand you have these characters throughout your work who are doing the opposite, like this von Pfeffertitz who isolates things from the realms and makes everything singular and lonely? That's very. That's a very common character in your work. Um, you call it the alchemy. You call it alchemy in reverse. In in the monstrous and, and the marvelous, and you have this interesting quote in that book um, that when colonizer, scientists, explorers ordered the natural world in an ideal display in these cabinets of curiosity, they quote, betray a rupture at the heart of things, a chronic blindness, an incapacity to read not only the new world's body, but its metaphysical books of days and dreams and prophecies, as if God gave man a second chance at Eden, and he could not dwell there, but only sell there. And it feels like there's a, that's, it's not a coincidence that in Netsuke with the, the, deceptive psychoanalyst. He split his life into two cabinets and that you call them cabinets. Uh, and the one is an like Eros is separated and unintegrated and hidden from everything that he's doing in his daily life. Whereas the way you're foregrounding language and the spark of Eros animating everything is the exact opposite. So the, the last question I had about what happens when you bring yourself into space as a writer was the question of, will the spark of eros be there? Will it follow us into the book of unnatural nature? And what's so great about reading this book, and that's why I want you to read again now is how buoyant and vibrant and electric and alive the prose is. You've taken this vocabulary of machines And this vocabulary of physics and of technology. And it feels like it's coursed through with the erotic. Like when Mick's frustulator sheds a silver trickle of electromagnetic gravy. So um, this is my preamble to have you read some more prose.
1: Okay. Once more, Mick reflects on being Mick. Quiver's lover had been made to disappear. What does this mean exactly? Alone in his corner, beside the humming ice maker, make attempts to get a handle on such losses. As in her hammock, Quiver deeply sleeps. He thinks if he were more instinctive, he might understand Quiver better. Pensive, he considers his own detained erotic life. Bewildered as always by his place in the physical world a man of tin as unforgettably he had once been called to his face. A man born of an abstraction, contrived, schematized, then printed, printed in parts. Yet he is, to use Quiver's word, a thing of brute matter, an embodied abstraction of human thought, a complex, whole, gifted with a context and an identity. If he is not human, still he is human in so many ways. See how I suffer, he thinks. Is this not human, this suffering? And was Quiv's fascination for the virtual redhead any different from his own fascination with Al Pacino and his marvelous realms, his talismanic gizmos, his toaster, his blender? And if Al's faucets and the bellhop's buttons caused his central circuitry to spark. Was this his fault? Had he not been programmed to receive, retain, and respond to the erratic, mutable, irresistible weather of human effectivity? Is he not, when gazing at Al's incomparable face, uplifted? Do not faces, toasters, brass buttons give off light? Is he not, as are so many creatures, polyamorous? He thinks that if there is a word that describes him, he is not alone in the ways he lives. For the first time in a very long while, he recalls his first encounter with a terrestrial music called the blues. He discovered that he was wired to something so much deeper than he had known possible. He reverberated to a voice as pure as the voice of a child, a bird, the wind, a voice that descended into the deepest waters, a sexed voice, yes, This is what it must have been. That elusive weather, the sexed voice, repeating over and over again, come to me. And Mick had wanted more than he had ever wanted anything to go to him. Whoever he was, this guy whose heart was in sync with his own core receptor coil. Mick imagined the singer was a guy in a suit, like the guys in what was once called the movies, a guy not all that young, yet loose and tight, all at the same time, leaning nonchalantly against a streetlight on the back wall of some mysterious establishment, such as a bar, a speakeasy, some sort of personal amulet, a chibi chimney stack, gracefully held between his lips, lost in reflection, lost in love. At ease and intact in his own integument, in a way Mick could never quite comprehend, The guy is handsome, this Mick knew, but how and why? This dreamy guy was a movie star, something Mick fully appreciated when he first fell in love with the movies, fell in love with a treasure that made of light was impervious to the determinism of space and time. And how marvelous, how perfectly apt that the immortals who loitered, who loosened the knots of their ties, who eternally smoked those chibi smokestacks, Assuring that those romantic urban nights were always overcast, were called stars. Al Pacino, he whispered to himself, Al Paco Lino, Alpine Piano, Al Pacino, who in an interview once said, "We weren't actors; we were lamps."
0: We've been listening to Ricky Ducrenet read from her latest book, Traffic.
1: And actually, that was that was Christopher Walken who said that. Oh, really. <laughs> that's when you know mix Swift wheel. It's a computer, right? So it makes mistakes. So every time Christopher, every time that Al talks, it's Christopher Walken, except when at the end I have Christopher Walken talking, and that's me.
0: So you have another book that follows this book. Yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit about your f- yeah. your future book also in space? I think
1: tiny. It's, it's unclear where it is, um, but it's, it's definitely my COVID book because it's called The Plotinus. Um, first part of it actually shows up in conjunctions. Issue on solitude. It's tiny, but it, 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 um, it threw me out of bed one morning. The, the opening sentence threw me out of bed. And, and so I ran for a pen and I started writing. And for not very long, I mean, a couple of months, it was just always there. And um, and what fascinated me about what was happening was that it, it, it is a sci-fi of a kind. It's, it's a very peculiar sci-fi. It's kind of existential sci-fi, but... Um, My character is is arrested by a robot called the Mm Platinus. and he's thrown into some kind of a mysterious cell, which he refers to as a closet. It has an air vent and the air vent allows him to have air and also a tiny bit of sunlight. And because he's in isolation, just about everything that happens happens in his imagining mind. And and the only thing that turns out to be real is this hornet that flies through the air vent. And all the erotic interest in the in the book comes from her arrival. Mm. I love that. And it's just in this spell the entire time. I've never been you know, one gets into the zone, but it, it, it did feel like uh, automatic writing.
0: Well, I'm so glad we were able. I'm sad it was virtual, but I was so glad we were able to spend this time together to talk about traffic.
1: Me too. You transcend the virtual.
0: <laughs> I would like to think so. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been listening today to Ricky DuCournay about her latest book from Coffee House Press, Traffic. You've been listening to Between the Covers, I'm David Naaman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength makeshift home office of me, David Nayman. You can find more of Ricky's work at RickyDuCornet.com. Ricky adds two poems, Bees Are the Overseers, and White Quetzal to the bonus audio archive. These join bonus work from Ted Chang, Forrest Gander, Ross Gay, Jory Graham, Alice Oswald, N.K. Jemison, C.A. Conrad, and many others. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio, or about the rare collectibles available from Ricky Ducourne herself, from Nikki Finney, from Ursula K. Le Guin, among many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to see what's available. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so via PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogi in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers' Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Ladbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Ladbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of Ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.